You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Hopefully you all are doing well. We're going to change a little bit. We're going to change this a little bit. So we're going to move away from the procedures um, and talk a little bit more about why we're doing a lot of this, in any case, skin cancer. Um, so I know this is sort of a, a procedural um, section, an intro to dermatologic surgery, um, but in many cases, why we're doing these procedures is for skin cancer. Um, and of course, this is something that you see in your offices all the time. Um, and so it's a, it's a good thing always to get nice refreshers on this um, and just sort of be up to date. Also, I think it's going to be nice because it's a little change of pace uh, for the day. You know, it's, it's a lot of stuff that we're going over here. It's just a ton to take in. Um, and sometimes it's nice to switch up a little bit. Um, so in any case, we're gonna move on to skin cancer. And we're gonna really sort of just focus, big topic obviously, we're gonna focus just on uh, squamous cell and basal cell, okay? Um, if you stick melanoma in there too, then we get to the problem of, this is the melanoma, blah, blah, blah. Okay, done, off. Um, and so instead we decided we're gonna we're going to hit just a little bit more on each of these and go over a little bit more on each basal cell and squamous cell. All right. And that remains for all talks. No conflicts of interest. I used to, but I got rid of them all. <laughs> okay. So based on incidence data, um, our pretest questions, what is the approximate number of non-melanoma skin cancer in the U.S. annually? 100,000, 1 million, 3.5 million, 10 million. All right, so 3.5 million being the favorite answer. Next question What is the approximate cure rate for Mohs surgery of a primary basal cell carcinoma? 50%, Great. I like to see that. All right. In squamous cell carcinoma in situ, the atypical cells are in what layers, layer or layers of the skin? Epidermis only, epidermis and dermis, dermis only, or subcutaneous only. Oh, I hit the button too fast, I think. Sorry. <laughs> well, still, wow, it was like, okay, there we go. Sorry about that. All right. There you are, there you are. Though so none of the songs, I mean, come on. I mean, like, we're in Vegas. I mean, we really should have, like, Celine, Britney, Cher. Because I'm seeing Britney on Friday and I'm seeing Celine on Saturday, so I'm very excited. <laughs> okay, epidermis only is the favorite. Okay, so over, what we're going to be talking about in this little section here, uh, basal cell carcinoma first, and then squamous cell carcinoma. Um, second, that's pretty much it for the overview. Uh, when we use the word non-melanoma skin cancer, um, a lot of people just think basal cell, squamous cell, okay? And that's what we're going to talk about today because those are the common ones. But there's a whole lot more here um, that are possible and that you at least have to have on your radar screen. These aren't talked about a ton because they're just not that common. 
Um, it's all that, you know, I only do skin cancer, basically. Um, so we will see these from time to time. But even me, that having this be the only thing I do, AFX I see maybe once every four to six months, DFSP once or twice a year, MAC once every couple of years. Merkel cell do come in a little bit more commonly. EMPD, you know, once, once or twice a year. So, and that's when someone that only does skin cancer. So you're not gonna see these very commonly, uh, but it's at least to have sort of, there are other things that need to be on your radar screen. You know, everyone sort of pummels home on squamous cell and basal cell, but to make sure that you're a little familiar with some of these other diagnoses, at least by the name and the clinical description and something that you might be concerned if you see it in one of your clinics. But as usual, we're not gonna talk about them. <laughs> All right, so basal cell carcinoma. Uh, just some background here. Um, it's derived from non-keratinizing cells of the basal layer of the epidermis. It's the most common cancer, period. Um, not just skin cancer, it's just the most common cancer. Um, it generally grows very slowly, um, and if allowed to remain on the skin, can become locally destructive. Um, a common question that you'll run into is, you know, why do I have to take, have this taken off? And if they're 98, I might say you don't um, uh, in some cases. Uh, but if they're relatively younger person, you know, it's one of those things that these things just keep on marching along. And if you haven't seen one yet, you probably will see one sometime where a basal cell just goes, and oh man, is that unfortunate. Uh, because these become just absolutely destructive locally, and we're talking then about taking off noses and ears and other things. Um, so they just keep on marching, and they can march um, right along, um, right through cartilage, right through foramen um, in, your, in your face, and go. Um, they rarely metastasize though, and this is really rare for them to metastasize. I've seen one patient um, with metastatic basal cell, one, and then it's always an argument as to whether it's basal cell or not. Um, so it's just not common, uh, but the local, the local issue um, is very real. Um, just as some numbers, four to one to SCC, 21 to melanoma, as just give you some relative sort of incidence numbers. Um, this is a uh, we, basically, the, Rogers came out with a newer paper. I, I put this slide together maybe like a year ago. There is one newer paper that's come out, though there's a little bit of controversy around the paper, so I'm leaving this one in there. Um, but this is incidence data from back in 2006 that was reported in 2010. And I think some of the better incidence data we have right now. Um, and they estimated in this that there were about three and a half million cases. So that was one of your questions. Three and a half million cases of non-melanoma skin cancer. Now, 75 to 80% of those are basal cell, and the, most of the remainder are squamous cell. Now, of course, there's a small little pocket that are some of these other tumors, but generally, these are the two ones. So if you can approximate and extrapolate that out to just shy of three million basal cells per year, it's a ton, it's a ton of skin cancer. And we're gonna come back to that huge number later when we start talking about treatments. You can't treat everyone with Mohs, you just can't do it, uh, and you shouldn't do it. Um, Estimated lifetime risk of basal cell in the white population, 33 to 39%. I just took one off my twin brother three weeks ago. Um, so, I mean, just my dad's had like 10. Like, you know, everyone knows people with basal cell because it's just that common. It's just that common. Some risk factors here. Obviously, we know ultraviolet light is the big boy in the room. Uh, male sex um, is another one. Light hair and eye color, northern European ancestry, and the ability, inability to tan. So, a Fitzpatrick type 1 skin. Um, and when we start talking about pathogenesis, we've got a litany of things that come up. So this is sort of the list, not an all-inclusive list, uh, but sort of a big list. 
And we have to start talking about what we'll focus here on is just basically some of the bigger risk factors. Knowing that things like immunosuppression, ionizing radiation, arsenic can be factors with basal cell, there are some big ones in the room. And that tends to be genetics that are handed down to you by your mother and your father, as well as light exposure patterns um, are the sort of two big ones. If you have a personal history of non-melanoma skin cancer, this is a really nice little statistic to tell your patients. Um, the numbers do vary depending on what data you're looking at, but I think this is a reasonable number. And that is after their initial basal cell, in three years they have a 30%, and in five years they have a 50% of having another one. So it's a nice little tidbit that you can give to your patients. And you know, if you, you may argue it at meetings a little higher, a little bit lower, but that's a general sort of rule. At three years, 30%, five years, 50%. Uh, so really high risk of them getting another one. So this is why we get them plugged in to us um, to follow and to make sure that we're just catching these things when they're really small. Um, sun exposure is the key etiologic agent, um, particularly the UVB spectrum. Um, so it has a little bit more of a role than UVA, though both certainly have a role. Um, so this induces mutations in tumor suppressor genes. Um, and some studies suggest that really it's some intense periods of light exposure that can be particularly damaging with respect to basal cell. And we'll differentiate that a little bit with squamous cell. That's not to say that prolonged cumulative risk is not a risk for basal cell, but it appears in a number of studies like these intense periods may even lead you to a little higher risk than that cumulative risk. Um, obviously, UVA is part of the story as well. We do see in people who get iatrogenic light therapy, such as PUVA, which is sorolin plus UVA, that we see higher numbers of basal cells in that patient population as well. So both are factors, UVB being a little bit more prominent than A. Uh, clinical presentation, uh, y'all are probably very used to the basal cell. Um, it's one of those things that you just know when you know, for most of them, but not for all of them. Every now and then you get a little surprised. Um, but nonetheless, lesion that bleeds very easily, you know, people always say, yeah, I knocked my hand and then I got my basal cell, but of course we know to tell them you had a basal cell, cell there, and when you knocked your hand, um, it just basically bled very easily because that's what basal cells do. Uh, a lesion doesn't heal, oozing or crusting spots within a lesion, uh, scar-like lesion without ever having injured the area, and we'll come back to that in a little bit, or irregular blood vessels in or around the lesion are, of course, things that we look out for. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through each of the types of basal cell. Those, so the first is nodular. So this is our sort of garden variety. We've got two main garden varieties, nodular and superficial, when we talk about basal cell. That if you look, though if you look in a derm path book, you'll find 28 or some odd subtypes of basal cell. Okay. But these are the two garden varieties, nodular and superficial. So with nodular type, approximately 50% of all basal cell, um, primarily on the head and the neck. Um, and then the key uh, keys to the clinical diagnosis are what we're going to see um, in the following pictures. Um, it has that pearly luminescence. It just does. Um, and you can sort of see it here. Light shines off of it. Once you get used to seeing it, and probably people that have been in derm for a while, you know it. If you're new to derm, you're going to know it. Um, it's this pearly luminescence. The next thing is arborizing telangiectasia. Arborizing telangiectasia are these very specific blood vessels that go over the top that aren't just little tiny random blood vessels. These arborize like the branches of a tree. They sort of meander 
like a branch of a tree. And they really do sort of look like little tree branches, uh, but very prominent. And then the final thing that you can see a little bit here is ulceration. So these ulcerate. Um, and that's another sort of clue um, to the clinical diagnosis. The big boys, if you all have had the opportunity to see a big one, they're never together. They're always ulcerated. Um, and that's why it has the name rodent ulcer, because it basically looks like a rat starting to eat through your face, because it ulcerates to such a degree on these large ones. So that's another sort of name that people will call these long ones, larger ones, at least historically, is a rodent ulcer, because of the very prominent ulceration. This, of course, just has a little itty bitty tiny erosion. Another very synonymous basal cell, the pearly luminescence, the arborizing telangiectasia, probably a little healing area of um, erosion right there. This is what it looks like histologically. So it's a nodular basal cell because of what it looks like underneath a microscope. We have these large basophilic aggregates, um, basophilic meaning blue staining, aggregates of cells with something that we call a peripheral palisade, which means that the cells sort of line up right at the edge here. It often has retraction artifact. So the retraction artifact is what's synonymous with the blue arrow here, okay? This is important. This is important because it makes sense now when you use your curette. This is why your curette works. And the reason is, is that these things do not stick to the surrounding stroma. And so you can just curette this thing right off. It's because these little nodules will just come flying off the skin because they're really not well adhered uh, to the skin that is surrounding them. And why curettage works so well for basal cell. Uh, but these are sort of the common things, the nodular aggregates, um, this um, retraction artifact. It's called an artifact because it only happens when you're cutting the tissue that it pulls away a little bit, and this peripheral palisade. Notice the amount of tumor underneath the microscope. Okay, this thing lifts the skin. There's a lot of tumor. I mean, you can see it, it's just everywhere. And that is gonna make a change when we start looking at micronodular and morpheiform basal cell. And it's gonna make sense as to why the clinical looks different, okay? So next is superficial type. So these, if you've been in it for a while, you know that they are more on sort of the trunk. Um, so they're just much more frequently found in the trunk and extremities. They're often confused with eczema, psoriasis, or tinea in its early stages because it looks like a little tiny red patch. Um, it's, it usually doesn't look like too much. There are some keys to the clinical diagnosis, though. The first one is someone says, oh, I've been putting a steroid on this for a year. And it's just getting bigger. Well, that's one big key. Um, but anyway, so it's, non, it's not responding like you would expect it to to standard interventions. And the real key is you either you know, get your microscope, your dermatoscope, or whatever, your high-powered light, and you look at the border and you find that thread-like rays on the border. And we're gonna show you that in just a second, and that is the key. You see it, and you're like, superficial basal cell, done. Okay, so this from way back where, it doesn't look so bad, it's a pink little plaque that's just sort of sitting on the skin. This is the little guy that I'm talking about. This little thing right here, see it? Right there. It's this little bit of a raised border right here. And if you were to take your dermatoscope and look, you will find the same characteristics as you would in the nodular basal cell. You'll find pearly luminescence, you'll find arborizing telangiectasias. This is the key right here, okay? And usually by the time they're coming to us, you know, they've tried some other stuff and, and we're already sort of hinted in. Uh, but nonetheless, that can really sort of help you out. Okay, superficial because of the histopathology. That's why we call it superficial. So here are those aggregates. They look exactly the same as nodular, don't they? They are um, basophilic aggregates 
with retraction artifact um, and this peripheral palisade, this peripheral lineup of cells that just happens right on the border. But this time, they are all budding off the epidermis. Okay, they're budding off of the epidermis. This is the epidermis right here, the top layer of skin. This is all dermis. And we see these islands budding right off. So it makes sense that when you have this, there's not that bulk of tumor anymore. We have just sort of a little bit of tumor that's right underneath the spot and sort of makes sense that we only have this little pink plaque. Okay, we don't have this big old nodule anymore. All right, so that's superficial. The next is morpheiform and micronodular. So these are the ones that are like, I hope it really doesn't go too far. Um, and you really have to just sort of see. And the reason is clinically, these are tough. These are very, very tough. So morpheiform basal cell, and we'll show you what the histopathology looks like in a second, often can present just as a pink to ivory plaque. Um, and this is the thing where they say they got a scar, but they never really had anything happen, or you notice that scar. Um, and that's if it's a primary morpheiform. If people leave basal cells on their skin forever, they sort of de-differentiate into morpheiform too. So they got a big old uh, basal. A lot of times we'll see morpheiform characteristics as well. But in a primary morpheiform, it can just look like a scar. Uh, micronodular basal cell can present in multiple ways, macule, papule, or a slightly elevated plaque, um, and may be di difficult to differentiate from nodular basal cell depending on that particular micronodular. The main issue with both of these is subclinical spread. Okay, you've all heard about it, but why does it happen? This is why it happens. So this is micronodular basal cell, okay? So this micronodular is these little pellets of basal cell all in here. And they do look similar. They have a little bit of retraction. They're basophilic. They have a lineup of cells. But they're little tiny things, okay? There is not a lot of tumor here. And this tumor often doesn't lift the skin up. It doesn't show a lot on the skin surface. And so when you're looking at the skin, it looks pretty normal. But you got a micronodular basal cell underneath there. And that's why we have subclinical spread. This stuff is going on underneath the skin. It just may not translate to a change in the skin over top of it. That's what subclinical spread is. And that's why it happens with micronodular. This is morpheiform. Again, we have these sort of cords of basaloid cells now in the dermis. And again, there's not a lot of tumor. And so this can be just going on forever and no one really notices on the skin surface. Um, and so this is why you can have, again, that, that subclinical spread. Okay. So biologic behavior of this, sort of like we've been talking about, really slow-growing tumor. It's hard to estimate the, uh, how quick it grows. It's always a question, how quick does this grow? Um, there are some rates here that it can double between 6 and 12 months, though in reality, I think that, is very, that might be overestimating things by a lot. I mean, a lot of times you'll have people with a 2-centimeter basal cell that's been there for 10 years. And clearly, it's not you know, been taken off at this kind of rate. Nonetheless, metastases are very, very rare. These are some numbers, 0.0028 to 0.55. I think this is very high. This is probably closer to reality. It just doesn't happen very often. If it does, lymph nodes and lung are the most common place. So now we're going to look at some of the treatments. There, there are a litany. This is not an all-inclusive list. There's a ton of options uh, for how you treat basal cell. And with 2.8 million approximated in 2006 and probably more today, um, all of them probably have um, certain tumors that they're really good for, okay? So it's one of those things that you need to choose and select the right treatment for the right tumor. Stratify. We need to stratify these. And so what we'll talk about is standard excision, curatage with electrodesiccation, and Mohs, noting that there are multiple other ways that we can treat these, but we're going to talk about the big boys.
So risk factors for recurrence. So this is how we start stratifying, okay? This is how we take our basal cell and say, how worried am I? And how do I need to appropriate select the right treatment for this patient? So this is the kind of list that you need to go through. This is in sort of all major textbooks. It's in the NCCN guidelines. There are now NCCN guidelines for basal cellulose, so you can look that up online. Um, location and size is the first thing. So has everyone heard of area L, M, and H, low risk, medium risk, and high risk areas with regard to basal and squamous cell? Has everyone pretty much? So, so there's some yeses, some noes I'm seeing out here. Um, so area H is high risk, okay? So it's the mask area of the face. So it's pretty much sort of central face. So around the eyes, around the nose, around the mouth, around the ear um, are sort of what we talk about with area H on the face. It also includes the genitalia, hands, and feet, okay? So that's what we consider high risk areas. Medium risk, cheeks, forehead, scalp, and neck. And then low risk is everywhere else. And so size matters. Obviously, a six meter ba millimeter basal cell on someone's ala is not the same as a six meter ba millimeter basal cell on someone's chest. These are two very, very different things um, in the way we treat them. Um, and so this is sort of our sort of parameters for what, we, what might trigger us to think about doing Mohs versus doing one of these other techniques. If it's over two millimeters and a low, if it's over one, uh, sorry, if it's over 20 millimeters or two centimeters in a low risk, if it's over a centimeter in a mid-risk, and over six millimeters in an area H. Though I personally, if anything is on area H, I consider it appropriate for Mohs. Um, borders, well-defined or poorly defined. Sometimes it's in a field and you got no idea where this thing starts and stops. So if you have no idea and it's not clearly defined, that's a high-risk feature. Recurrent tumors have much more higher chance of being recurrent again after the second, after this, with the second procedure. So again, high risk. If the person is immunosuppressed, if they've had previous radiation therapy to the area. The subtype, aggressive growth pattern, being what we just talked about, morpheiform and micronodular. And of course, perineural involvement, because these tumors, squamous cell and basal cell alike, can sort of go down a path of least resistance, which tends to be around nerves. So they can be little sort of highways and byways to get to other areas. So if we're seeing perineural growth, um, that is a high risk lesion. So we have to think about our goals. Number one, cure. Okay, we gotta take care of this tumor. That's our number one goal. The next one is function, function, function. Okay, we have to keep in mind normal anatomic function for that patient. Okay, if I'm on an eyelid, I can cure the tumor with a centimeter margin, but we're gonna have some functional issues after that. Um, maximal preservation of cosmesis. Um, it's on the list, it certainly is on the list, especially because a lot of these are head and neck. And finally, cost definitely needs to be part of the conversation. So let's talk about surgical excision. So what we're talking about with our elliptical excisions that we went over. Uh, this is obviously the most common treatment for basal cell. Five-year recurrence rates are anywhere between 3.2 and 10% for basal, and that's primary. And with recurrent, we're up to 17%, okay? They are different spots. It's already sort of declared itself as being a little bit more aggressive. This is the largest, this is the largest study, this Rao et al. It's old, I know, but it's still referenced very, very commonly in the literature. So if you're reading any textbook, these are the numbers that you're often going to see in these textbooks. Um, and they reviewed all studies on basal cell up till then, 106 they included. Um, and they said a general margin of four millimeters is reasonable for high risk, for non-high risk basal cell. 
The problem is once you get to larger basal cells, greater than two centimeters, the appropriate margin is all over the place. Um, and so that's why we, we start going to Mohs at that point. It's really hard to know when something is this big, how much spread there is underneath the skin. And so it's hard to recommend a margin. Okay, next is electrodesiccation and curatage. I love electrodesiccation and curatage. People seem to be nervous about it. I think in certain areas it gives great cosmetic results um, and it's very effective. I tell my patients I think it's just as effective as excision. I think in the available literature, um, the occurrence rates are very um, comparable between the two. Um, and this is great. I mean, this is something where it's very quick for the patient. They don't have to have stitches. They can sort of resume normal activity very quickly after this. And sometimes that's not the case when you do an excision. Obviously, you want to be aware, you know, you're creating sort of a deep scrape, and in some areas that cosmetically is going to be inappropriate, and so you'll probably shy away from this. Um, also, you're not going to be sending away any tissue, and that may bother certain patients where they want that pathology that says that everything is clear. So you have to choose the right patients with this. Here, here's this Rao paper, um, and these are sort of the rates that they saw. Everything with regard to non-melanoma skin cancer is five-year recurrence rates. That's the number, okay? That's the gold standard. So when you see a paper and they're giving you like 12-month follow-up, it's just not enough. It's not enough. It's not standard. It's not gold standard. You need five-year. So five-year recurrence rate is the gold standard. Um, and with excision, see, these are a little bit lower, I would say. Um, currently, with the newer data, it looks like this is probably more like 93 94%. That's the number I give my patients. I give about 5 to 7% recurrence rate. Um, Electrodesiccation curatage is very similar. Uh, Mohs is up at 99%. Okay, so that was one of our questions earlier, and we're going to talk about Mohs in a second. Okay, so Mohs. We're going to go over it a little bit more with basal, with squame. We're not going to go into this kind of depth, okay? Um, so there's some pivotal papers that we're going to talk about when we talk about Mohs. Um, and this is one of the more recent ones, and this came out in 2005, and this is the Leibovitch. Huge, huge group of patients, um, over 3,000. This was a prospective multi-center interventional case series. And the primary outcome measure is exactly what we want, five-year recurrence. And they found with primary tumors, it was 1.4%, and with recurrent tumors, it was 4%. So these are the five-year recurrence data. And in these papers, these are not sort of your standard everyday patients. They're not, in, they're not including six millimeter basal cells in the trunk and extremities. These are the ones that are considered high risk uh, by what we went over in that graph before. Or in that graph before. Um, so these aren't just sort of your run-of-the-mill basal cells. And those were still the numbers. Um, this is the, uh, the main studies that have been brought out for Mohs. These are the big ones. The first one is actually the Mohs series. This is the Fred Mohs series. Um, and he had a ton of patients. The guy was like impeccable um, as far as keeping his data. Um, over 8,000 patients in his series um, that he included. He had a 1% recurrence risk. Um, and you can see sort of as we jump down the line here, the numbers included and the uh, uh, recurrence risk um, for the five-year recurrence rates. And they vary between usually around 1% and 2%. Um, so why not use Mohs for absolutely everything? It's cost. It costs a lot of money to do Mohs. And so ED and C, excision, are completely appropriate for most basal cells. And it needs to be those high risks that we're saving the Mohs procedure for, that we're using it in the correct instances. 
Um, one of the main things here is that the academies wanted to be proactive. These are all the big hitters when it comes to dermatologic surgery, the American Academy, the American College of Mohs Surgery, the American Society for Mohs Surgery, and the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery and Advocacy, ZA. So the, all the big hitters came together and said, we got to figure out how to solve this problem. Of they're going to kill the Mohs codes. They're going to just bring down reimbursement to no one wants to do it anymore. Um, and so they came out with the AUC, and this is the appropriate use criteria, sort of trying to direct people on when it is inappropriate to use MOS. I'm not going to get into a discussion about the AUC. Um, they are controversial because um, um, there's a lot of issues that surround the AUCs. But nonetheless, I think it's important to be aware that they're out. There's an app that you can use on your phone that is an AUC app that will tell you on the tumors, do they meet AUC criteria? So if you go onto whatever your app store is and just put Mo's AUC, you can download that onto your phone. And it's a nice little tool to at least be aware of. So the key points for basal cell here, it's the most common malignancy, multifactorial in origin, if left without treatment, can be very, very destructive. And many treatment modalities are available. And really, this is all about appropriate patient selection. Um, and for allowing us to deliver uh, the most effective care for our patients that's also cost effective. All right, so now we're going to move on to cutaneous squamous cell. So squamous cell, this is a malignancy arising. Does anyone have any questions on basal cell before? We, yeah. Well, it, I, I have to biopsy the lesion first. So I, at some point, it was biopsied. Yeah. Um, if, if it's already been biopsied, I, I do not re-biopsy it because I can get the bulk off with that curette. Um, so everything has to be biopsied. On some case, like I have some um, Gorlin patients, so um, basal cell nevus syndrome patients. I don't know if any of you have seen any of these, but they often have hundreds of basal cells. And so on these patients, I will biopsy an EDNC at the same time. Um, and, so, and I do it very only in specific circumstances. They have already been prompted that I may EDNC something that I shouldn't be EDNCing, like a mole or something like that. And then I hold everything for pathology. Generally speaking, is recommend that you do the biopsy, wait for the biopsy to come back, then treat. But I don't reshave at that point. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh huh. Uh, no, no. I mean, if it's low risk, that means it's under two centimeters, right? And if it's in certain circumstances under a centimeter, certain circumstances under, say, I would never like. EDNC on a nose, generally speaking. Um, so there's always like, you know, a hundred year old person that's gonna come in and we're like, okay, we just need to palliate this spot. So not considering those instances. No, not really. As long as it's still low risk um, and not morpheiform, not sclerosing, sort of your standard nodular or superficial, I think EDNC is a reasonable um, thing to consider. Um, but of course, patient selection is very important. But yeah, if it's low risk, no. I wouldn't. Any other questions? One, okay. The youngest. Uh, probably like, I think I had like a 12-year-old once. Yeah, I think I had a, and that was within the last year. I've had, so at our uh, children's hospital, um, we've had some kids um, with uh, Gorlin syndrome that will come over 
Um, and if they're like, you know, if they're sort of uh, brave young kids, then they can go through the most procedure, no problem. If they're not, they have to be taken care of at children's. They're usually tiny little itty bitty things though. Um, and a lot of the Gorlins patients won't get them till later, but some certainly do get them when they're younger. And they look different. They can look like little skin tags, but they tend to be pretty small. But yeah, um, a non-syndromic patient, the earliest is probably around 17 or 18. Non-syndromic, yeah. Anything else before we move on? Any other questions? Yeah? Yep. Well, not, not in any of my Gorlin patients because none of them want to go on because uh, they've read the, the side effect data. Um, so we were a site for one of the trials. Um, it's not, the data isn't published yet, but it's a different uh, dosing trial. And then uh, one of, a couple of those patients have continued on with Vismotogen, which is Aravedge. Um, it is so difficult to take that medication. Um, I don't know if you all have worked with anyone. It's sort of a big medicine. And the side effects are really, really tough. So about 70 to 80% of people will have muscle cramps, which are really, really tough because they're sleeping at night and they just continue to cramp. Um, they'll lose their taste, so dysgesia or agesia, which doesn't sound so bad until you stop eating. Um, and life just is not fun if you're not eating. It really is sort of depressing. Um, and you lose weight. Um, and hair loss. And then, of course, then we go down to the 40% of like a million other side effects. So the side effects are terrible, um, but they're really tough to take. So the new trials are focusing on different dosing regimens for those patients, not having them on all the time. Putting them on for eight weeks, taking them off for eight weeks. Putting them on for 12, taking them off for eight. Um, a lot of oncologists will do like week on, weekend off um, to try to deal with some of these side effects. Uh, also, with something like Aravedge or Vismotigib, um, it does not work in all tumors. So if you look at the actual phase twos that brought it to market, about a third um, had complete responses, meaning that they couldn't see any clinical evidence of that tumor left. Um, however, once upon stopping them, a, a number of those tumors would come back. Um, and then there was a section with partial clearance. But you know, it's definitely not like 80% completely cleared and it never came back. It's definitely not the incidence data. Um, and in those initial pivotals, um, those were all people with really locally advanced basal cell or metastatic basal cell, and about 50% came out of the trials. Uh, that's how hard the medicine is to take. Um, so it, it is a, something to consider for sure, but you really need to be you know, very uh, keyed into your patient. They, they need to be aware of everything that can happen, um, and usually it's for the worst of the worst. Yep. Has anyone else seen um, Aravid used in your offices? Oh, wow, okay, yeah, good amount. I mean, I would, some people I get like sent to me for Aravedge and they got like, like a couple basal cells. I'm like, oh my hell, no. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough medicine. It is not easy to take. It's a tough. And then there's, there's a lot of other areas too, which I won't get into, where, you know, can you pre-treat with Aravedge and somehow decrease the basal cell and then treat after, which makes me nervous too, um, because you don't know how it's hitting that tumor. If it's sort of gonna get it piecemeal, looks like it's clear, you treat the tumor, comes back at an edge. Um, so in any case, it's, it's, a, it's a medication that is evolving. It's evolving. Okay. All right. So moving on to squamous cell. Um, so this is a malignancy that arises from epithelial keratinocytes. It's the second most common malignancy behind basal cell, and the incidence is certainly increasing. Uh, so we go back to that same slide, but now highlighting the next line. 
Um, so about 750, about three quarters of a million, and this was back in 2006, um, had squamous cells. So not nearly as common as basal cell, but still really, really common. And one thing that I sort of want to just have is an overarching theme of squamous cell. Um, I was taught this early in my career, and I think it's important for everyone to know, and it is the line, beware the squamous cell, okay? Do not include all of these tumors into the same kind of mindset. Oh, it's a basal, oh, it's a squamous cell kind of deal. Squamous cells can be tricky. Um, and those high-risk ones can certainly be tricky. And this is a lot of the work in squamous cell right now, is differentiating what is a high-risk squamous cell and how do we need to approach them. So if you go to a, you know, like a big AAD meeting, like our academy meetings, that's what a lot of the squamous cell talks will be on. And we'll talk, we'll talk about it a little bit here. So the incidence is increasing. Um, so this was incidence back from 76 to 89. And at that time, it was about 39 per 100,000 in women, 63 per 100,000 in men in the US. And then in 90 to 92, um, it had increased to about 100 per 100,000 for women and 191 per 100,000 for men. There's a lot of possible factors to this. Um, could it be increasing UV exposure patterns? Possibly. Could it be an increasing prevalence of HPV? Possibly. Ionizing radiation, genetics, iatrogenic immunosuppression. Uh, it probably is some of these, if not all of them, and more, as to why we're having an increased incidence of squamous cell. So what is the pathogenesis? UV exposure, just like basal cell, is number one. In this one, when you sort of look at the sort of nuances of the data, cumulative sun exposure seems to be a little bit more important. Certainly getting those big burns and those huge doses, not good. Uh, but in this case, cumulative seems to be even a little bit more uh, uh, of a factor when we're talking about squamous cell. Um, certainly we can see that UV is important when we look at um, sort of these latitude studies. And they'll find with every 8 to 10 degree decline in latitude, basically getting closer to the equator, um, you, um, you have a um, double, doubling of incidence um, in, in uh, the incidence of squamous cell in light skin patients. Okay? Um, so obviously showing... More sun equals more squamous cell. Uh, UVB or UVA is certainly part of this story as well. Um, other factors, myriad of other factors, just like for basal cell, the list sort of goes on and on. Um, chronic dermatoses, we know when someone has a chronic dermatoses in one area, um, and that chronic inflammation, that can certainly predispose them to squamous cell. Um, chronic scars, um, certainly can expose them. This is called a margillans ulcer when you have a chronic wound that develops a squamous cell in them. Um, that is a risk. Exogenous chemicals, personal and family history of squamous cell, all things that we're thinking about. In addition to this, human papillomavirus is being talked about more and more when we talk about squamous cell. This does inhibit p53 tumor suppressive genes and it also may act through inhibiting cell apoptosis, basically allowing cells to turn over more easily. Um, we see that it can be in certain studies involved in the pathogenesis of up to 90% of squamous cell in immunosuppressed patients and up to 50% of immunocompetent patients. Immunosuppression, okay? I have pure transplant clinics at Ohio State, and the reason is, is because these people, these poor people get so much um, immunosuppression that they get so many squamous cells. Um, and so immunosuppression is huge in the story of squamous cell. Um, of particular concern are solid organ transplant patients.
patients because of the amount of immunosuppression that they get. The SCC to BCC ratio in the normal population is one to four. In the immunosuppressed uh, population, in the solid organ transplant, it's four to one. It's not that they're getting less basal cells. They're getting more basal cells. That's how many more squamous cells they're getting. It's a shocking number when you think about it. Um, to have that flip like that, and the basal cell number is going up. It's, it's a huge, huge increase. The number that's out there is about a 65-fold increase. So put your normal risk, 65-fold higher is what we're talking about. So these are big numbers. Um, the amount of immunosuppression, immunosuppression is important. So heart transplant, they get the most, and so they have higher rates. The type of immunosuppression is important. So there's higher rates with azathioprine, um, more so than cyclosporine. So there are a lot of factors at work here um, that are trying to be worked out. Um, nonetheless, it's one of those that, you know, certainly in these patients, you know, if they are developing huge numbers, they need to be, we screen them every two to three months, sometimes more, um, where we're trying to just basically tackle these piece by piece by piece and trying to stay ahead of the issue. Clinical presentation. So you all are sort of used to this part. Uh, presents with a variety of clinical features, can range from indolent to incredibly aggressive. Um, these, these do not act the same. Squamous cells do not act the same. So progression, there is a sort of progression that's becoming more and more accepted over time, and that's from actinic keratosis to squamous cell carcinoma in situ to invasive squamous cell carcinoma. However, many invasive squamous cells are believed to evolve de novo without antecedent actinic keratosis or squamous cell carcinoma in situ, okay? So we think that this does happen in certain cases, but certainly we can have just de novo, which means it sort of just comes on its own, um, invasive squamous cell. So let's talk about each one of these. This is an actinic keratosis underneath the microscope, and this is an atypical proliferation of keratinocytes at the basal layer, which is the lowest layer of the epidermis. Okay, so here's our epidermis. Here's our dermis. And so you can start seeing some of these atypical cells just here at the basal layer. There's a big whopper here, and there's a few more. I have even a better example here. Again, here's the basal layer of the epidermis, and you start seeing these cells that are a little bit larger um, than some of the surrounding cells. And this is an actinic keratosis. This is where the proliferation is, right at the basal layer of the epidermis. Um, again, there's more and more acceptance that these can be a precursor lesion to squamous cell in situ and squamous cell. There's controversy about the rate of transformation. If we were in a meeting 50 years ago talking about the same thing, they may say a number like 8%, okay, which is not the right number, but that was the number that they may have told you in the past. Um, it looks like it's much, much lower than that. So a reasonable study showed a per year transformation rate, very low, 0.075 to 0.096 per lesion per year, okay? What does this translate into like a real world situation? So a patient with about 7.7 AKs, and the reason why they chose that, that was the average number of AKs in the study. It's not that someone's gonna have 7.7, okay? Um, but that was the average number in the study. Um, invasive squamous cell would develop at a rate of about 10% over 10 years if those were left untreated. So that's sort of an idea of the number that we're talking about. That's a translatable number there. So, you know, it's, it's a decent amount because if someone doesn't have one AK, who has one AK? I mean, there are some people with one AK. But generally speaking, someone has one, there are more to be found. There are more to be found. Um, so usually it's these fields, and that's why field treatment has become so commonplace that we talk about it now. Uh, but in any case, um, they can transform. 
your normal actinic keratosis, a little bit of erythema, uh, that keratotic scale that just feels different. You all have probably been taught this, but you can feel it better than you can see it. This is why everyone's running everybody's hands all up and down everyone, just feeling them up. Um, is because you can just, it's just so quick to find them. Um, otherwise, you have to like search through the scale, uh, but you can feel it right away, that keratotic scale, it just hangs on. Um, so again, you know, just using palpation there is very helpful. Next, we'll move on to squamous cell carcinoma in situ. So anytime you get this in situ um, word um, with regard to any cutaneous lesion, this means that it is all within the epidermis, okay, intraepidermal. Um, and here's an example of it. Um, and so basically, we can see this atypical proliferation now goes from the very bottom of the epidermis the whole way to the top. And in addition, the epidermis is expanded. We call this acanthosis, but this proliferation can expand the epidermis, okay? It's also known as Bowen's disease. Um, again, this can arrive for, arise from an actinic keratosis or be de novo, meaning it just sort of arises on its own. The rate of transformation here is a little bit higher between 3 and 8%. Um, so now we're getting into a little higher risk of it transforming into a squamous cell. And again, just another example of those atypical cells, the whole breadth from bottom to top, atypical keratinocytes. And this is the normal clinical picture of a squamous cell carcinoma in situ, so a pink to red, very well-defined plaque is a squamous cell carcinoma in situ, generally speaking, and that's exactly what we have here. Another example on the periungual skin, a pink, very well-defined plaque, and you can see a little bit of anechodystrophy dystrophy caused by probably this sort of pushing on there. Person may be itching it or something else, but they have a little anechodystrophy dystrophy um, associated with it. And finally, we move to invasive squamous cell carcinoma. Um, we can see in this patient, um, the epidermis, which is pointed out by the red arrow, looks pretty good, it looks pretty good. It's a little messy over here, a little messy right here, but generally speaking, the sort of girth of this lesion is in the dermis, okay? So these are huge um, uh, uh, collections of cells um, in the dermis of atypical keratinocytes in many areas sort of having this eosinophilic area here of keratin formation. Um, but again, this is invasive squamous cell when we have the proliferation now out of the epidermis down into the dermis and potentially lower into the skin. Um, with regard to squamous cell, particular sites carry certain risks. So there's a higher metastatic rate on certain sites. So not all squamous cells are created equal. We already sort of talked about that. Some of the things that make them non-equal are these sites. Um, so the lip and the ear you may have heard of. Okay, so if you've been around the block a few times, you've probably heard lip and ear squamous cells have a little higher risk of local and regional metastasis. Um, and by local, I mean in transit. Um, temple is sort of a new, new, new kid on the block <laughs> and to add to your list. Um, and that, uh, on the more recent, um, in some of the more recent papers, this is as risky, if not riskier, than lip ear. Um, so these are the three sites here that just being site-specific carry a higher risk um, of in-transit or regional metastasis. Periungual squamous cells have a higher local recurrence rate, uh, but a little lower metastatic rate. Margillans ulcers, and these are squamous cells that develop in chronic wounds or scars, have a higher metastatic rate. So you sort of have to think about some of these things. There are different subtypes of squamous cell. So keratoacanthoma, or KA, historically used to be separated from squamous cell. So again, 50 years ago, if you were standing here, you would have not included them in the same sentence. 
you would have talked about a keratal acanthoma, and then you would have talked about a squamous cell carcinoma. And that is not the case anymore. We, consider, we call it um, SCCKA type, squamous cell carcinoma, keratal acanthoma type. Um, and so they look very similar underneath the microscope, and they used to think that these would be self-resolving, that they would go away on their own until some of them did not, and they metastasized. Um, and so now most people will include them as a subtype of squamous cell. These can grow extremely rapidly. So if you've seen one in clinic, I mean, this is the one where they say it's been there for three weeks and you already got a big spot. Um, and they're not lying to you. If they say that about a basal cell, uh, <laughs> they're probably not telling you the whole story, the whole story. Uh, but with a keratoacanthoma, that can be right on. That can be right on. There's another one that you should be aware of called a verrucous carcinoma. Uh, do you have a question? Yeah. Um, no, as long as it's sort of in on a hand that's high-risk site, um, and so no. Nope, nope, because uh, most insurers will consider it a type of squamous cell. So yeah, you can sort of make them synonymous with one another. And when I write on my report, it's SCCKA type, and our pathologists read it as SCCKA type. So we don't have any problems. Um, why have you had problems? <laughs> Okay. Part of it, I think, was because the pathologist read it. It's just cratoacanthoma. Cratoacanthoma, possible, you know, SCCC. Okay. So. Yeah. I'm very strict with my dermatopathologist. I don't know if you can tell. Like, I like things a certain way. Um, and um, I, if I don't like the read, um, we're not having a good day. Um, and so if they're putting cratoacanthoma, nope. Nope. They have to change the report. It's SCCKA type. Um, so there are specific ways I want things reported to me. Um, and you as a practitioner can ask that of your dermatopathologist. You can ask them to report things certain ways. Sometimes they'll push you back, and you have to sort of find a common ground. Sometimes they won't. But you, you're allowed to make these requests. Um, so verrucous carcinoma. How many people are aware of verrucous carcinoma? Few, half-ish, third, third half? So verrucous carcinoma is another type of squamous cell. This is a low-risk squamous cell. It's related to HPV types 6 and 11. So they are always HPV-associated. There are some really weird names with these things, okay? Bushke-Lowenstein tumor, epithelial caniculatum Ackermann's tumor. So these are just site-specific versions of verrucous carcinoma. They tend to be a slow-growing tumor with a low risk uh, for any regional or distant metastasis, uh, but can be very large in size. The big thing um, with these is that they are never treated with radiation. Uh, because a couple of cases historically um, had these anaplastic changes and really bad behavior after radiation. So that's sort of the big take home, is that if you get some kind of read that says verrucous carcinoma, no, no, no to radiation. Okay. So clinical findings here, they can present anywhere from a keratotic, non-healing papule, plaque, or nodule. These are, can be a little less characteristic than our basal cells, right? Basal cell, boom, most of the time you have a diagnosis. Here it can be a little less characteristic in some instances. Most commonly on sun-exposed skin. Um, and of course, SCC keratoacanthoma type presents as a nodule with a central keratotic core, and we'll give, go over pictures of each. Um, so this is a squamous cell uh, carcinoma. So if you just had this little tiny bit of scale here and nothing else, we'd probably say AK. But we start noticing this nodule underneath. We don't like nodules underneath keratotic uh, scale. And so this would make me nervous for a squamous cell. And this is a garden variety squamous cell. 
Here's a keratoacanthoma, and this is the very sort of normal look and appearance of a keratoacanthoma. So this smooth dome-shaped nodule with a central keratotic core is how it's described, and it's how it looks. It looks just like that. Um, these are ones that you can see and be like, that's exactly what it is. It's a keratoacanthoma, SCC type. This is a keratoacanthoma underneath the microscope. Looks just like it does on the skin. <laughs> um, so it's sort of this volcano. Um, inside, this is all keratotic core. That's that central core. And this volcano has these sort of atypical epithelial proliferations that give it that sort of really nice nodular appearance. All right. So we didn't really talk about staging when we talked about basal cell. You got to think about staging when you're talking about squamous cell. Um, and the real thing, again, is just sort of saying what's high risk, what's low risk, which, what needs more workup. So for SCC, the rate of local recurrence in METs has to be considered. You must think of this. Um, most patients have a low risk for lymph node or distant metastasis, but we need to find the patients that are high risk. If at high risk for these, there can be consideration given for further workup. Usually you're going to start bringing your friends from other specialties on at this point. Potential lymph node evaluation, potential imaging of the patient. Um, these are gray areas when it comes to squamous cell, but it's something that should be thought of. All right, so this was a great paper that came out um, in JAMA Derm, like in the last year, I think. Um, it was relatively recent. It's got a lot of really good information in it, uh, but this is just sort of one of the many graphs in the paper. Looking at the metastatic rate um, with uh, respect to certain uh, parameters, risk factors. Um, and we can sort of see the common things that we look at when we start um, looking at high-risk features of squamous cell. Invasion beyond the subcutaneous fat, um, a risk ratio of over 11. Breslow thickness, usually we're talking about this with melanoma, but now we're talking about it with squamous cell. So these are all thickness parameters, and they're all um, well associated um, with um, a higher risk for metastasis. A bigger diameter, over two centimeters, poor differentiation. Perineural involvement, high-risk sites, temple, ear, and lip, immunosuppression. So these are the main staging criteria. Again, I think if we're dealing with these tumors, you need to know the staging criteria. So this is something that you should be aware of. Um, unfortunately, there's more than one. <laughs> um, so the, the two that are primarily in use right now are the AJCC and the Brigham and William, uh, Brigham, uh, and Brigham and William, women's hospital um, uh, criteria. So these are the two, got, uh, two ones that are in uh, play right now. This is another one that's not used quite as much. Um, the real going back and forth is this is sort of the bigger body. Uh, this is the one that most people were using historically. Um, and then Chris Schmaltz, um, uh, who's really big into squamous cell and works at Brigham, um, came up with this that tends to be a little bit more closely associated with outcomes. Okay, um, down here, we're not going to get into all of these factors, but it basically, it goes into high-risk factors, how many of them you have, and that will stage your tumor. And depending on the stage of tumor, you can figure out risk of regional metastasis and whether or not that risk is high enough to do more. Unfortunately, with squamous cell, we don't have sort of like a, um, an NCCN that says, if you're in this risk category, this is the study that you do next, like we have for melanoma. So it is a little bit more of a gray area. You need to know what people are doing in your area, um, what the common thing to do. And a lot of times with these high-risk tumors, we take them to a tumor board. So everyone can sort of talk about those high-risk features and decide what we need to do. All right, so let's talk about treatment a little bit. 
So current treatment options, again, there's a million. Uh, we're going to talk about the main ones. Again, exact same list, cure of tumor is number one. Um, and the numbers are very similar here. So excision, again, for SCC, five-year recurrence rates around 7%, very similar to what we see for basal cell. The general margin here, again, is four millimeters. You can play with that margin if you're dealing with a high-risk tumor and the patient doesn't want to have Mohs or something like that, because sometimes you're like, I don't want to have Mohs. It takes too long. And so you can make that margin a little wider if you have a higher-risk lesion. Uh, but again, of course, I, you know, I would push the person to do the correct procedure. But if they were saying, no, you can play with the margin. But the general margin is four millimeters. Um, we're not going to go over the same. It's very much the same for electrodesiccation and curatage for squamous cell as it is for basal cell. Um, I will say this with regard to ED and C for squamous cell. I don't use it a lot um, for invasive squamous cell because I'm just nervous about squamous cell um, and I want to be sure that I'm around it. If it's a very, you know, some of my transplant patients, they have so much on them, I will ED and C them. Uh, but it's a thoughtful process. It's not as high on my list as it is for basal cell. Um, so you'll see some people that will never ED and C a squamous cell and you'll some, see some people that will EDNC a lot of squamous cell. Uh, but you do want to think about sort of the risk of that squamous cell and to make sure that you're choosing appropriately. But I will say it is lower on my list uh, for squamous cell than it is for basal cell. The risk factors, we've sort of been talking about the same. The location and size, very similar kind of metrics. Uh, very similar kind of metrics the whole way down. Um, the difference here is we talk about differentiation instead of subtype. So you will get a differentiation when you get your path report back. You'll have well differentiated, moderately, or poorly differentiated. So if you're moderately or poorly differentiated, that's sort of taking you to that high risk group. Um, so that's sort of the pathology. Um, the big thing here, and we're going to talk about it more, is sort of the role of immunosuppression. And that really gets you into high risk uh, for a squamous cell. Five-year recurrence rates list is very similar. Um, I will pull you to this number of 96% um, for five-year recurrence rates with ED and C. And I, I would hesitate to venture a guess. The reason is, is because not many people were using ED and Cs. And so this was only like the smallest, most minor little um, SCCs that were being treated with ED and C because it's not as commonly used uh, for SCC. So that's probably why that number is a little bit higher. Um, so when to consider Mohs, one or more high-risk features in tumors of any size in certain sites. So lip, ear, and nail because of the anatomy can be very difficult. So key points here, it's the second most common uh, skin cancer in humans, multifactorial in origin, and if left without treatment, really can be locally destructive and progress to regional and distant metastases. So with squamous cell, beware the squamous cell. Treat it appropriately. If it is a high-risk lesion, we stage every single one of our squamous cells, and then we know what their risk is, and we take action depending on what that is. It is a little unfortunate that it is not set in stone for you right now. You cannot look at flow charts for this. Um, it's a bit more of a gray area. Um, but even though it is a gray area, you need to know the data. Um, again, just like with basal cell, many treatment modalities are available, and appropriate patient selection will deliver the most um, effective care. Um, the only other thing that I'll say with um, uh, squamous cell that we didn't talk a lot about um, is sort of in additional treatments. Um, and just because I didn't want to put too much information to this 
um, talk. Um, but certainly if you have high-risk people, so people like immunosuppressed individuals um, or people that are developing huge numbers of squamous cell. And for some, we have patients that just develop these and we have no reason as to why they do this. Um, but you need to either be comfortable with bigger medicines or get that patient to someone who is comfortable um, with chemoprophylactic medicines and things like that. Things like nicotinamide, that's easy. Um, so if you, if you all haven't heard, nicotinamide is a vitamin that does show that we can decrease SCC rates um, in these patients. It's relatively easy to take. It's a vitamin that's over the counter. So that's something you should all be, you know, if you're having someone with a lot of squamous cell, put them on nicotinamide, 1,000 milligrams a day. Um, the other one that you can use is, uh, you can dose it once or you can dose it BID. I had someone who had a little diarrhea um, with the one dose and so he, he uh, separated it. 500 is the most common pill that you can find. Um, when you're telling them to get the bottle for nicotinamide, it has to say nicotinamide on it. It may say nicotinamide, it may say niacin in the form of nicotinamide. It's confusing for patients, but you need to be sure it doesn't say just niacin because then we flush it all over the place and it'll be a disaster. No, no, so it's, it's, it's sold as the non-flushing type of niacin. Very difficult. So niacinamide, that I am not, pot, so I, I am not sure. I tell all my patients nicotinamide, someone has asked me that question, and I don't know the answer. Do you know, is it the same? It is, they're synonymous, niacinamide and nicotinamide. Thank you, so yes. So, you know, about five to six a year kind of deal um, where you're just really starting to get, you know, they're just constantly coming in. That's a very easy one to go for. Um, if you're someone, having someone who's really sort of going past that, um, then we move on in our clinics to acetretin, um, which is a very common one. Um, you all are used to using isotretinoin, so acetretin is not that far from it, and you don't have to use eye pledge. Yay. Um, it does stay in your system a lot longer than isotretinoin. So of course, if you, I mean, how, how many sort of childbearing age women are having tons of squamous cell? Not many. Um, so usually it's not an issue, but certainly if you were to have someone in that age range, you wanna be careful, because then they can't get pregnant for three years after um, acetretin is a long time. But we start at really, really low. I'll get you in just a second. We start really, really low at 10 milligrams, get them used to it, and then we go up to a tolerable dose for them. The first thing that they'll notice is dry lips and sticky hands. You, of course, have to follow labs similar to isotretinoin. Um, usually um, around 20 milligrams is the dose where I'm starting to get happy um, that they're on that kind of dose. And it does take around three to six months before you start really, uh, will, would notice any decrease. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just start at 10 for everybody. Um, and we actually had a patient who um, um, recently, he came off for certain reasons and then he started back on at 20 milligrams and tons of joint pain and problems. And so he came back off and he started back on 10 and then worked his way up and he had no problems. So I think it's, it's easier not just from overall side effects like on uh, lips and hands, but for more uh, noticeable ones like joint pain and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. They can be really tough patients. From basal cell? Yeah, so, uh, and, and, and this may be what you're sort of talking about. So some of the sun sensitizing agents, so some of these make you a little bit more sensitive to the sun, and so they can be correlated with, um, I'm not particularly familiar with that paper, 
Um, does anyone else know about, has anyone else read that one? Uh, but my, my suspicion is that's what they're talking about. It's a sun sensitizing agent that people are on for long periods of time that can lead to, it lead to an increased risk for squamous cell. The most common one that you may have heard of as well, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know about the hydrochlorothiazide in particular, is, did you, okay, um, is voriconazole. Uh, voriconazole is the big one, lots of kids on it uh, for fungal infection prevention. So these are kids with many other problems, but we're noticing that they're getting AKs and squamous cells, and it's because of the photosensitivity that they're getting from the voriconazole. Um, so there are some medications that can make you sun sensitive that then can lead to higher risk for squamous cells as well. Um, how, how old is the patient? Mid-70s. Um, um, relatively healthy? Um, so um, personal stance here is, is this is something that you can use. Um, I have used it. I have used liquid nitrogen uh, for squamous cell in situ, for basal cells. This is as a palliative uh, treatment in my mind. I am palliatively treating a lesion. I am not definitively treating a lesion. And the reason is to really definitively treat it, you need cryoprobes, you need to know how far your ice ball is going down there and what you're actually destroying. Um, and so I think it, it can be reasonable if all other treatments make no, don't make a lot of sense and you're sort of going to that. Um, otherwise, I think in general, um, as, a, as my personal practice, I like things with more definitive numbers and studies behind them. Um, and the unfortunate part about cryo is this, the trials with cryo looking at things like SCCIS, they all were using probes. Um, and this is more historically used. No one, who has a probe? Anyone have a cryo probe? Now, I'm not talking about the thing that just tells you what the surface temperature is. I'm talking about a probe that goes into the skin. Nobody. Um, so that makes it just very unreliable in my hands. And again, like I said, I enjoy the world of predictability. Um, and I, that is unpredictable to me. Um, so I probably would have, I personally would probably opt for another treatment. Um, though I think in instances, um, these type of palliative measures can be useful in certain patient populations where other interventions are not uh, uh, indicated. For a, never. Never is my answer. Yep. Um, if I'm going to treat with an amiquimod, I'm treating with amiquimod or 5-FU or something like that. Um, I don't treat SCCs with it. Um, I may treat a small superficial basal cell or squamous cell in situ, things like that are reasonable for certain patients. Um, you have to talk about the patient. You have to talk about the little higher risk of recurrence with the lesion. Um, and for some people, that's a reasonable. But I don't uh, personally shrink things down and then treat them surgically. Um, just because it's a little higher, because so now you're now you're dealing with the recurrence rate of that initial intervention, right? So it makes sense that if you treat something and it has an 85% clearance rate, and you've shrunken it down, and now you're just treating that little area, well, the whole area around it has an 85% clearance rate. So now that is my clearance rate is 85%, um, and so I don't particularly like that. 
So I, I don't do it. And I, I know that uh, it does happen, and um, it can. And I know people are using like Vismo um, reasonably and trying to see how that works and see how it goes. So it'll be interesting as you know, more of those kind of papers come out. But until there's something that more clearly defines that for me, I don't do it. Um, for which purpose? For SEC and Site2? Um, I actually do it a very specific way that's a little different than the way most people do. Um, I love my curette. So I uh, actually curette the lesion first, uh, allow it to heal for three to four weeks, and then treat the lesion. Um, that's the way I treat it. Not, that's not a standard way. Um, and then I will attempt to go for a full six-week course with the medication, um, depending on how the patient tolerates the medicine. Uh, that's the full course, and I do go for the full course, whether it be Effudex or Carac once a day, Effudex would be twice a day, generic 5-FU twice a day. Um, I go over very, very specifically what to expect with the patient, um, give them a pamphlet that has pictures in the pamphlet so they know what to expect, go over, I can't even tell you how long, about washing your hands, not getting it anywhere else. We had a patient in my residency who were treating field treatment on his arms, um, and he sort of was touching uh, his genitalia afterwards, and he ended up having phimosis, and had to have a circumcision at like 85 um, afterwards. So you want to be really, really clear about anything that can go wrong <laughs> uh, beforehand. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I use the creams all the time. I think they're very useful. I don't use them all the time for SCCIS. I will say I usually go with just a straightforward EDNC or excision or Mohs. Uh, but in certain, certain circumstances, um, I would. Yeah, it's a little bit more of a one-off. Um, and so, so there are squames that you get that are just plain old invasive squames that are not keratoacanthoma type that clearly can grow fast and are very, very bad squamous cells that are literally growing before your eyes. You don't see it often. Uh, I probably see it you know, once every couple months where it's just a, a normal squam taking off. It's not a common occurrence. But when you see that, it's not good. You need to intervene like that. Um, KA is sort of a separate thing. Those can grow very, very quickly, but it does not really mean that they have a higher risk uh, for metastasis. Yeah, so they're sort of separate. Mm -hmm. So I use intralesional methotrexate, but intralesional 5-FU is similar. Um, a lot of the studies are from a while ago. I use it for specific circumstances. Really, really hard to treat tumors and really, really hard patients. Um, so I, I don't use it commonly. It's, it's a little tough to go through. I, I numb everything up because these things tend to really hurt when you inject them. In some practices, it can be hard to get them. Um, sometimes it's not so hard to get depending on your practice location. Um, but I think in certain circumstances, it's a tool to use. So we'll, I'll give you two examples of when I used it. Um, one was on a lower extremity, and this individual was like 98 years old. And he comes in, he's this huge stalwart in our community with like, his like 18 family members, um, and they're all sitting there like, what are you gonna do for all the squames on his legs? And they're just all over the place. And I'm like, well. Um, and that's a, good, that's a good person for um, intralesional, and I use intralesional methotrexate um, on him. And actually had a really good response. Um, everything has to be numb though, it's time intensive to numb all that, and then you have to inject it all. There's only so much that you can inject. 
I checked labs before um, and during treatment. Um, and I would do the same with 5-FU, but I don't use it very commonly. Another one was someone in the conchal bowl, and it was sort of this uh, KA. And to go in there and get that thing out on this older patient was going to be really, really difficult for them. And we talked over all of our options. I still said that was my favorite option, and they did not like it. Um, and so we went on to using an intralesional. So I think intralesionals are generally for tumors that you can probably take care of better with Mohs, but for patients who are just not going to go through with Mohs, but you need to do something because this is going to get out of control. And that's the kind of case where you're starting to say, can we use radiation? Can we use intralesional? You're starting to go for those straws, those second-line therapies. And that's probably where I would put intralesionals into those second-line therapies. But they can be useful in certain circumstances. Um, so I pretty much, I don't follow levels. I just put, I tell everyone to stay out of the sun and put them on vitamin D. <laughs> I do. Um, I, I, I just, it's, it's just more for them. They have 8 million things going on and I, I, I honestly don't. I know people who are very, very strict and will titrate depending on vitamin D level. Um, and it's just on these patients, honestly, you know, I have 25 things going on, and I have to limit my list somehow. But for those people that I'm really saying, you know, to really strictly be careful about it, um, we'll usually just put them on vitamin D. Yeah? So if you have any experience using Yeah, no. Uh, the question was, uh, do I have any experience using Dovinex with 5-FU? Um, and I do not. Um, I will optimize. I've never optimized with Dovinex, and that's the whole idea here is can you optimize your field treatments, and you certainly can. You can be as simple as optimizing with like amlactin to take off a little bit of scale. Uh, my favorite is tretinoin, um, so I'll use uh, like a 0.1% tretinoin on them, and it will, I'll try to take off um, some of the uh, stratum corneum so we can get better penetration when we're using these creams. Um, I'll do that when I do chemo wraps with 5-FU and when I'm just using it normally if, I'm, if I have a tough area. So I will always do it like on backs of hands because in every study for AKs, when they're using topicals, backs of hands are like impossible to treat. Um, and so I'll always use it back there. Um, I'll optimize PDT the same kind of way. Uh, but that's, yeah, I've just never used Dovinex for it, but I'm guessing that's the same kind of. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, I haven't. Has anyone else tried the, the Dovinex with the 5-FU? No? Okay. All right. Maybe next year. We'll have a lot of people that have tried it. <laughs> I'm just getting my daylight PDT going, so. <laughs> Any other questions? Nope. Okay. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.